I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey everyone, uh, before you listen to this episode, I just wanted to flag that we recorded it originally in uh, October last year, and for various reasons it's been sitting on the edit pile um, until now. You know, we wanted to get to the cubbies, we wanted to get to Wonder Woman, and we finally got to Blade 3. <laughs> you lucky people. So there might be some out-of-date references in there, um, any praise for Joss Whedon you can consider redacted by now. But yeah, other than that, the episode is as timeless as the film which we are discussing. <laughs> Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that has finally caught up with the complete Ryan Reynolds superhero oeuvre. I'm your host, Joe Cunningham, and joining me are... James Hunt. And Caroline Sita. Caroline, thank you for rejoining us. Thank you for only having me on for movies in which Parker Posey plays a villainous <laughs> figure, because the last movie I was on for was Josie and the Pussycats, and I really like this through line that I've accidentally created. You should come back for Superman Returns. Ah, we got yeah. someone already, haven't we? <laughs> wow, what a Parker Posey, like, month or whatever, you know, couple months you guys are having. And do you know what? I'd completely forgotten about it until I started, well, I, as as anyone who's seen Blade Trinity will attest, um, which, hey guys, this week we'll be discussing David S. Goyer's 2004 movie, Blade Trinity. Um, and as anyone who's seen Blade Trinity will attest, you will have forgotten it within 24 to 48 hours <laughs> yeah. of, of having seen it. So naturally, having not seen it for over a decade, probably. I mean, I've seen it once before, and it was a long time ago. Um, and even as a Ryan Reynolds apolog- apologist, I was like, I won't be revisiting that anytime soon. Yeah, finally in, in 2020, back at it. And there, yeah, t- t- surprised to see Parker Posey. Um, and yeah, what 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 a what a coincidence, Caroline. Two Parker coincidence, or did I plan this exactly as I wanted it? <laughs> no, you have no memory of it. Had you seen this before? <laughs> nope, never seen it before. We I rounded out the trilogy, at, which I started watching because of this podcast. So I've really independently gone on a blade journey thanks to you guys. <laughs> Are you going to watch the TV show now? Yeah, we'll see how far my commitment <laughs> stretches. <laughs> See, I had only, I, when when we started doing this podcast, I'd only seen Blade Trinity, and that was because wow. um, I I was watching Ryan Reynolds movies, so I was like, yeah, I'll watch the Blade movie with Ryan Reynolds, um, and kind of never felt the need to watch Blade 1 and 2, because I was like, I don't need more of that in my life. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I think probably to... to to give a bit of context for our later discussion, Caroline, um, you and I, I think, bonded off mic over both kind of really enjoying Blade Two, uh, even though it didn't it didn't get the uh, best reception on this podcast. 
Yeah, I actually think I like the first Blade the best of them all. But certainly I enjoyed one and two. Definitely yeah, I like the more first one as well. Number three. <laughs> I think I think the first two are both really good. I think I prefer the second one. Um, but yeah, that this is. Hey, we'll get to it. Uh, so yes, we will. Um, we'll be discussing um, Blade Trinity today. Um, but before that, um, as as we have been doing on um, this, you know, kind of first batch of episodes back, uh, we we're going to take a couple of minutes to um, to have a chat about Seb and um, and our memories of him and Caroline. You, uh, I guess. I, I I guess you, for for you it's uh, Seb was someone who you knew through the podcast when we kind of uh, cold called you five yeah. six years ago and were like hey we read this really great article you read I think we just called it we called it out on the podcast didn't we an Agent Carter article that you'd written yeah I was actually gonna yeah I was gonna talk about exactly that it was I don't even I think you guys just ha- you had read this article I wrote for the AV Club in 2015 which was about it was sort of both critiquing and complimenting like the things that I thought the Agent Carter TV show did did good and bad in terms of like women representation. And I think you guys have just talked about it on the podcast and you I think in your tweet, you know, just said like, oh it tagged me, like we we um talked about this person's article. And I um then just listened to the episode and it was this is kind of, I want to, I want to compliment Seb and I want to compliment both of you as well because or thank you really because that I that article slash at that time sort of talking about female representation in superhero movies like I used to get a lot of unsurprisingly toxic pushback on that kind of stuff I feel like we as a culture we're not talking about feminism in the way we do now that article in particular I I think people were annoyed because I was sort of taking a female-led show and critiquing it And you guys were, like, so kind about the article, and it was honestly (laughs) such a relief to listen to an episode with, like, three, you know, nerdy guys who were, you know, just very respectfully talking about it. And that that is a rarity sometimes. I listen to, you know, lots of different geek podcasts, um, and I think your guys is, even from that early point, you know, felt very unique and welcoming in that sense. And that was one of the reasons that I would, you know, whenever I can't even remember if I reach out to you guys or you reach out to me, somehow we decided I would come on. And I think I talked about Ninja Turtles in my first episode. Yes. Yeah, that would um, be it. Yeah. <laughs> But even, you know, the reason I felt comfortable coming on, like before I go on any podcast or do any, I do a lot of research just to make sure like, is this, you know, <laughs> are, are these toxic people that I don't want to be associated with? And from the beginning, you guys, you know, and Seb really embodied this. We're just like so welcoming and very non-toxic. And I think that's a lovely sort of space to carve out in this, you know, geek comic book superhero world. <laughs> it's sadly not the majority position, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I, I'm trying to speak back. I think, I, I, I think our pilot episode that we kind of trialed of the podcast was was agent carter yeah. was agent carter season one um and honestly if you listen to bats that now super toxic just, uh, it's just it was just gross you wouldn't want to listen to it and uh, <laughs> then we tried and then we tried it again when we when we recorded an episode for real and it was much better but no uh, no i think we um i think we found your article that first time around 
And then we got we got to Agent Carter pretty quickly because we were like, we still want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I think we'd maybe just talked about the first couple of episodes maybe at that time and then the yeah, full season was out. I seem to remember it was episode four of the podcast. I could yes. be wrong. <laughs> That's, I mean, that, that rings a bell. pretty early on, yeah. We did Daredevil, we did Iron Man, we did um, was Batman. Batman, yeah. Batman 89. And then Agent Carter, yeah. Yeah. And then and then Watchmen maybe, yeah. We 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 forced you to watch Watchmen, James. Yep. (laughs) What a run you had right there at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Weird that we didn't get to Blade Trinity straight away. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I think I I I think Caroline obviously it's been a a a delight having you back on the podcast. Um, And to be honest, I think you've been a much more regular presence on this podcast than I have for the past uh, year. and you know, uh, I, I certainly, as a listener, I would always look forward to a Caroline episode. Um, and you know, I, I think, um, I think it's something that that all of us and and you know, Seb, Seb, uh, definitely. You know, we we were all always keen to have you on the podcast. You know, because you must have you must have done episodes where it's just me and James or just. Uh, yeah, I, mean, it, I actually or... think it took me a while to get to one where all three of you were on. I would sort of, I mean, understandably, I would sort of sub in, you know, or you would have a guest on when when one of mm-hmm. you wasn't available. So I do remember it was a little bit before I was on with with all three of you, but then slowly I collected <laughs> the full <laughs> set of Cinematic Universe. I remember um, the first time you came on, me and Seb, like afterwards we had a chat where we were like, Oh God, we're going to sound like idiots because she's so she's so smart and insightful. Oh, that's nice. I don't feel that way. I mean, I don't. Yeah, that's not my perspective, but that's very nice. Um, yeah, I was going to say one other memory that springs to mind from doing this is our. I think it was just you and me and Seb James that um, that did the Superman four episode. And mm-hmm. I think that was so indicative of like Seb's, you know, love for DC in general and obviously Superman in particular. But I remember <laughs> I watched that episode and I was like, great, you know, we'll do a quick like hour and a half little chat about this kind of silly movie that, that isn't that good. And there's probably not that much to say. And I remember just like halfway through being like, Oh no, we are going to talk about every single scene in this movie because Seb sort of like love hates it, <laughs> he loves it so, so much, deeply yeah. that we sort of, and I was like, great, this is not the vibe I was expecting, but like <laughs> it was very fun to do. And I feel like that also really was sort of the spirit of, of this podcast and of Seb just really, we needed to hit every single Superman four scene. <laughs> So that was another really uh, endearing memory that I have. Uh, it's that good is... that it's on record. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so posterity. that episode I think was was well over an hour and a half, if I remember correctly. <laughs> that, that sounds about right. I, I that is that is one of the episodes that I've not been brave enough to go and listen yeah. to yet. Um, but I, you know, I certainly will do it at some point. And I, yeah, I, I mean, having done however many other podcasts where Seb talks about Superman. I can only imagine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and one other thing too, this was, um, so I ended up reviewing the Stargirl TV show this year, which honestly, you know, originally hadn't been a property, you know, I knew of growing up or anything and yeah. got the assignment. And I think, like, I absolutely think that Seb's love for this property, like really carried over to how I watched the show and reviewed the show. And, and just on a tangible level, like he gave me a lot of 
backstory about Starman that ended up being very helpful when I was writing those reviews and um, the last few episodes aired after he passed and and he was like definitely I was thinking of him through all those those last episodes and I'm really glad he was able to sort of impart that love for Stargirl to me and hopefully to all the listeners and <laughs> to many of my listeners yeah yeah who check out the show um, so yeah I'm really grateful that his love for that was able that I was able to experience that as well that i i mean that's the that's the thing that 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 i think will keep coming up any any time we talk about seb is every person will have like like you're saying star girl every person who knows seb will say oh my god there was there was this thing that he just kind of talks and talks and talks about and um and that you ended up getting so much from um cuz i mean I don't know. I I I I don't think I'd ever heard someone mention Starman or Stargirl yeah. <laughs> before before Seb did. And um, I mean, over the years, some of the detail he went into that with that property. Um, <laughs> and well, that is that is the funny thing. So when I got this assignment, you know, I'm sure I had listened to Seb talk about this many times. And and I will admit, sometimes when you guys go nitty gritty on comic books, I do. You know, it washes over me a little bit. Just because I don't know all the details, but as soon as I got this assignment, I was like, "Wait, I need to go back and listen to some episodes because I know Seb went deep on this, and this will be helpful when I'm he reviewing the so show." He went so deep. I remember he talked for like twenty minutes when we asked, "Like, what is Starman?" and he just went yeah. on and on. And we were like, "Seb, it's been twenty-five minutes. We have to do the podcast." I'm pretty sure that's the exact episode I went back to try to find yeah, when yeah. I got this assignment. To be like, "Okay, this will be all of my like homework done for me very conveniently." <laughs> I, d- I did that so many times with the podcast in the early years, though, when I was rereading, when I was reading the comic book recommendations uh, back before I had a child and had time and you know the the ability to sit down, and read, and record a podcast in a week. Um, I would because sometimes you know when you are talking about these comic book concepts and characters and these kind of vast complicated stories um they they don't make an awful lot of sense even if someone's just kind of sitting down there and explaining to you and then i would go off and kind of read a little bit of it or or maybe like uh encounter one of the characters that had been talked about on a TV show or they would get introduced into a movie or tease that they were going to be in there. And then suddenly just that little bit of extra context, I would go back and listen to the original, Mm -hmm. the original explanation and go, right. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now I can put these pieces together. (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes, and this is just how my brain works. All it requires is this person has been cast as this character. And I'm like, right. Okay. So that is now, that is now a fixed point. I can imagine that person's face as you're talking about that character. But until, yeah, until that happens, I I might struggle a little bit. And that James is why, um, some of these X-Men to this day (laughs) (laughs) still couldn't tell you. (laughs) Fair, not unfair. Yeah. Right, okay. Um so we'll we'll move on now to uh talk about some of the pop culture that we've been um watching, reading, listening to this week. Um whatever you want to talk about, Caroline, what what is um what has been getting you through uh the COVID world this week in the world of pop culture? Yeah, so I have two things I want to mention. One, I decided to um start rewatching the show New Girl. I don't know. Is that, do you guys, did you guys ever, was that a yep, crossover did, hit yeah. in the UK? 
It was so a I massive watched, hit, but we did watch it. it yeah. It was on yeah. um it was on E4 in the UK and I think belatedly. Um It's on Netflix at the moment, so. Yes, yeah, I I think it is. I think it's I, I think it's had a life. But I I was watching it as it as it was going out. Yeah. Yeah, I watched the first turns out I watched the first four or three and a half seasons live. I couldn't remember how much I watched and there's so there's like two and a half left for me to watch. Mm-hmm. And it's just been a great like you know, it's just like really enjoyable, well-made sitcom. The first season came out my senior year of college, so I have like a lot of nostalgia for it. And that has just been, I don't know, I tend to sort of relax by watching like YouTube videos now, but I, but going back and like using a show as my relaxing is actually really nice too. Um, so that's been like the positive side of what I'm watching. The one Caroline, negative... I... I, yeah. Sorry, just to stay on New no, Girl for a yeah. minute. I, my abiding memory of New Girl was a show that felt like it was constantly trying to figure itself out. Mm. Like, it, it, any time it kind of got to a point where you were like, is right, okay, is this the, is this the shtick now? The show would second guess itself and go, ooh, does this work? Um, because they, they had Damon Wayans Jr. Mm-hmm. right originally in the cast... Um, and he he got replaced. I forget the actor's name, but is it was Winston, yeah. right, the character? Yeah, Lamorne Morris. Oh, Lamorne Morris, right? Yeah, um, that was because Damon Wayans. He was on another show that unexpectedly got renewed. Happy endings. Happy so endings. They yes, they lost him as an actor, so they ended up instead of having a different actor play the same character, they they made up a new character, which actually is really nice because then they can bring back the Damon Wayne's character whose name is Coach. They can bring him back yeah. later, which actually <laughs> once, is really nice and like Once Happy Endings gets cancelled yeah, eventually. Yeah, exactly. Um yeah. Yeah, I but I so I remember I remember that being weird and then the first season of the, and, and I, I kind of want to run through my memory of this to see if yeah. this is correct. The first season is very much a hey Zoe Deschanel's kooky and there are these guys and then they realise, actually, this might be a really solid ensemble. Let's make it more of an ensemble. Um, let's let's dial up Jake Johnson and, you know, the, uh, and the supporting cast. Um, and then... And then I just remember kind of going like, okay, so a lot of these characters are really funny, but what's their, what's their deal? What's the story you want to tell with them? And mm-hmm. I, I just... I just for me, I remember New Girl being like a frustration of this could be the best show on TV, but it's not. It's not quite there. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think your assessment is not incorrect in terms of it being starting out more as like a Zoe Deschanel led show and then being more of an ensemble show. But I think that I don't mind. I kind of like both of those modes. Like I've always kind of liked Zoe Deschanel, so I think that was sort of the peak of people being a little bit done with her in a <laughs> <Yeah>. way <laughs> probably unfairly but i never really had that phase so i liked her as as the central lead. i think it was also one of those things where it was sort of like the like the quirkiness of the character is supposed to be ridiculous like everyone else in the show is like what is wrong with you why are you <laughs> you know like acting like an elementary school kid when you're an adult but it was one of those things where i think if you just watch the commercial commercials or whatever you could sort of miss that 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 the show was not, was like, point, earnestly yeah. saying, love the quirkiness of this. It was sort of like, here's how a ridiculously quirky person functions in the real world. So I think it was more in on the joke than people gave it credit for. And I think, I think it was more, right, that it came off of the back of 500 Days of Summer. Yeah. That was the... If you turned on Zoe Deschanel, which I did, um, that was <laughs> that was the point. And, um, and 
I actually think the the reverse is true, right? That New Girl ended up being from from what I've heard such an intense show to make that it wasn't one of those sitcoms where the cast would all go off and make a movie during the summer because mm-hmm. they would just go no, do you know what? I'm going to have a couple of months. I'm not I'm not going to I'm not going to be kind of Jason Siegel over in how I met your mother going <laughs> right okay yeah what's this summer muppets sure fine okay uh, what can you forgetting sarah marshall yep great we'll just crack out a movie a year whilst i'm doing this sitcom they were all like no this is this is tough um i'm gonna have my summers and then zoe deschanel's movie career kind of ends and yeah. and and i feel like never really got relaunched post new girl either which is now now I regret how anti her I was at that time. Yeah. Be <laughs> because, because she's because she's comeback. good in New Girl. Well yeah, this hopefully. is the other weird thing is to me, New Girl is so frozen in amber as this like 2011, 2012 show I watched in college, and then looking up that it really only ended like a handful of years ago. Like yeah. we ha- we're not that far out. Like I feel like Jake Johnson has really only had his sort of big, you know, movie stuff happening really recently. And I'm sort of like, oh, I, I associate New Girl with being a much older show than it actually is when you look at when it ended. So there's, you know, Zoe, she's got a couple kids. Uh, she's dating one of the Property Brothers, which is a very popular home improvement show here in America. Right. So, okay. you know, she's doing well on those things. I think there's plenty of time for her to have her big, you know, Comeback. Yeah, there's time for a comeback for sure. Yeah, okay, so that, that was New Girls the Yin, what's the Yang? Yeah, okay, so then the other one, and I wanted to bring this up because I think it will be relevant to your audience. So I write a regular um, com- uh, column on romantic comedies, and the one I decided to tackle this week or next week, when I now I'm dating this podcast, the one that I'm tackling currently in this <laughs> universe is uh, My Super Ex Girlfriend, which I was oh, originally wow. timing yeah. to release with the Wonder Woman movie, which was supposed to be released in October. Like, the minute I decided to cover My Super Ex Girlfriend, they pushed the movie back. But who cares? <laughs> There's never a bad time to talk about My Super Ex Girlfriend. Uma Thurman in that has a vibe that I would say probably aligns with Cheetah in the Wonder Woman trailers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is a it is a very, very, very bad movie. Very bad. Yeah. Artistically, <laughs> very bad. Socially... Also tied into Stargirl because Stargirl, I feel like, is now just Luke Wilson apologizing for having been in my Super X Girlfriend <laughs> <laughs> because he plays a wonderful male ally in Stargirl after having played not exactly a toxic character, but certainly not a great. That that, that era of like 2005 was a bad era for like toxic male fandom, I think. Because um, the, the shtick of that movie is he dated a girl. Um, she turns out well they break up and then she kind of goes bunny boiler on him right but yeah so so it's like so it's like what what if fatal attraction if you had superpowers right exactly so she uma thurman is basically like the superman supergirl equivalent in this world weirdly even though the movie is called my super ex-girlfriend they don't the most of the like the first half of the movie is just them meeting and dating they don't break up until like over halfway through and i was like this title is really just spoiling (laughs) where this movie goes so it's like half of it is like ooh, what if you dated and had pg-13 sex scenes with you know wonder woman slash supergirl and then the second half is like and what if she went crazy and threw a live shark into your bedroom 
neither of these halves are good. <laughs> this movie is. <laughs> it was. It, every once in a while, you know, I think I spend a lot of my column like defending romantic comedies, and every once in a while, it's just very satisfying to pick the worst one of them and just like, <laughs> run through everything that fails about it. So if there's any listeners out there who maybe rom-coms are not generally for them, but superheroes are, I've, this is the crossover point of like my two big interests. <laughs> I'm not um, going to so, lie. We have considered covering it on the podcast. I think it's you know, on you would have list. a lot. You would have a lot to dissect about it. I, would say. I can only imagine. In my head, it's weirdly inseparable from Hancock. And I don't know why. Mm. <laughs> they came yeah. out around similar times, didn't they? They're is both sort right? of like yeah. superheroes in a slightly more problem, normal, maybe, yeah. Yeah. ostensibly normal world. I would say, I don't strongly remember Hancock. I have to imagine it's better than my super it's, girlfriend, yes, it, it, it no is, matter how yeah. bad it is. Um, so yeah, that was if, I'm sure the column will be published by the time this comes out. So if that's of interest to anyone, they can seek that out. I would not recommend watching the movie. <laughs> I, I saw the movie, so I'd definitely be interested to hear what you think yeah. about it. My memory of it is that had it been gender flipped, it would have been absolutely like impossible to watch. But, you know, because it was a woman and a guy, it sort of got away with that kind of lazy Hollywood thing of like, ha ha, it's funny that the woman's got the upper hand. And it's like, yeah, but she is like stalking him and terrorizing him. It's not like fun. Yes, it both has like, isn't it funny when men are like, abused in a relationship which you know and then it also has the like isn't it funny that if a person who's dedicated their lives to being a superhero got broken up with they would just go crazy it's like that's not funny either yeah although that is sort of what it ends up being there is so much potential and i get into this in the piece but there's like so much potential in the premise and especially having uma thurman you know delivered what i think is a fantastic poison ivy performance it's like this could have been a really fun like super villain story or there's so many things you could have done with this that are fun and subversive and instead they just like took the most down the middle uncreative pitch with it but yeah, yeah it is a fascinating relic of a very strange time and culture i think both for superheroes and for romantic comedies and maybe <laughs> it was only appropriate that they combined two disastrous results <laughs> james what have you uh what have you been watching this week uh so i've been watching through archer which i'd never seen before Mm. oh interesting yeah i i've watched archer up to uh, a point and then kind of drops off but um that was because i think i was i was using archer as my kind of like oh i know the rhythms of this it's fun it's silly it's recurring jokes and then Mm -hmm. like way deep into the run they go let's blow this up and kind of do do weird stuff with it and let's let's not do phrasing every episode and let's not do sploosh and then let's and let's actually try and become interesting and complex and i was going oh i (laughs) but you're but you're my you're my background show (laughs) yeah i've not i've not yet reached the interesting and complex place um so i'm enjoying the running jokes it reminds me a lot of harvey birdman which I loved at the time and uh, just has the same sort of density of of running jokes and back references and like uh, genre parody, which I enjoy. Um, 
Yeah, I, yeah. I kind of tried to get into it a couple of times and didn't really snag onto it, but this time I stuck with it, and I'm, I'm mostly glad I did, yeah. <laughs> and it's got that real... It's got that real kind of... Um, alongside the parody, the real, like, Mad Men vibe um, of kind of puncturing that particular type of male bravado yeah i I Um, sort of think it does it does kind of have its cake and eat it occasionally yes it's doing the thing of like well we're making racist jokes but everyone is a racist and they're all awful so you know and i'm like yeah you know but also you're still doing it aren't you (laughs) the um the ricky gervais school of comedy yeah um so i do part of me is wondering like is that going to wear thin eventually but at the moment i'm okay with it yeah, you know, I have the, I have the sufficient privilege to be okay with it. And uh, again, my memory is just a really, really fantastic voice cast as well. Yeah, yeah, and I like uh, noticing all the guest stars who turned up. There are some some good ones in there. <laughs> I can't think of any off the top of my head. Pat Oswalt turned up an episode or two ago. I was pleased pleased S- with that. Star of Blade Trinity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. Do you know what we'll we'll have to discuss Archer further once you do get to to the kind of the weird seasons. <laughs> okay. Um because I, I remember thinking at the time I am going to need to go back and watch these episodes properly because it's completely caught me off guard and um I've I've never picked it back up, but I, I loved the show when I was when it was my comfort viewing. Mm-hmm brilliant okay um guys i've 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 kind of been watching it i've watched a a handful of movies this week um i'm gonna i'm gonna throw out uh i'm gonna throw out uh five titles at you tell me (laughs) tell me which of the tell me which of these is the most interesting to discuss we've got defy floods (laughs) uh the the shia labeouf movie honey boy kingsman the golden circle um i confess and bombshell the only two I've seen of those are Bombshell and Honey Boy. I'm very behind the Five Blood. So if either of those two interest you more. <laughs> I've seen none of them, but I, I would be interested to hear about Bombshell. Okay, so Bombshell is, um, uh, if, if anyone's not aware, is the... Uh, the do you know what? I was going to say it's the Adam McKay movie, uh, but it's not It's not the Adam McKay movie, but it's it's Jay Roach directing a movie that's very much in the new Adam McKay mould of... The Big Short. The Big Short and Vice, and let's try and tackle contemporary American kind of right-wing politics, because this is the story... Well... Right-wing politics through a left-wing lens is what I would say. Um, so it, it's it's telling the story of the downfall of uh, Roger Ailes at Fox News. Um, it, its protagonist is uh, Charlie Strong plays Megan Kelly, who is the I, I, I'm aware that probably speaking to half an audience who knows Megan Kelly a lot better than the other, and one host who knows <laughs> Megan Kelly a lot better than the other. But Megan Kelly was kind of one of the most famous. Uh, faces on Fox News, um, Roger Ailes, who was running Fox News at, at the time, and, and was you know is this huge, like has been this huge figure in the last twenty thirty, well probably thirty forty years of American politics, and and certainly in American media because of overseeing Fox News becoming the behemoth that it is, um, but also this behemoth with 
an incredibly toxic culture um which you know was was at the center of it was him uh abusing sexually abusing assaulting the women who worked for fox news in return for uh progressing their careers um so it is a biopic right yeah so it's yeah so it's all it's all based on a true story i think you've got Charlie Saron playing Megan Kelly, who is kind of the famous face at the centre of it, who ends up corroborating the claims of Gretchen Carlson, who was uh, who was played by Nicole Kidman, who is kind of a supporting player in the movie, but is the is the former Fox News host who's the first one to accuse Roger Ailes of sexual assault, and then uh, Margot Robbie plays this character who's this like young up and comer at the station who wants to get ahead, um, and it's heavily implied that she's abused by Ailes, but she, I think she plays an amalgamation of kind of several real-life women rather than rather than anyone specific. Mm-hmm. Um, and Caroline, I, I, I'm interested to, to know what you, you think about this. I, I kind of... I, I was kind of positive on The Big Short when that first came out and yeah. went, do you know what? This is an incredibly complex thing that you're trying to story that you're trying to tell to find out about the financial crash crash and get people to to kind of care and invest in subprime mortgages and lending rates and all of this like really complex financial stuff um that that ends up leading to a financial crisis that um you know cripples financially lots of hard-working uh working class families around america and and you know the world because the the world economy crashes as a part of it and i remember sitting there and going like it, it, this is an interesting way to tell this story to to kind of i mean there's literally a scene where there's margot robbie in a in a bubble bath in the big short explaining lending rates or something like that and it's like and, and she's literally saying and you're listening to this and paying attention to it because i'm margot robbie and i'm in a i'm in a bubble bath and it was the year after the Wolf of Wall Street, um, and I remember thinking that is yeah, that's an interesting way to try and get people to engage with that. And then I think Vice is the is the is, for me was the opposite of that. And, and and I will say that my opinion of The Big Short has slipped since then. But Vice is the opposite of that. That it really just feels like it is this smug liberal take on a like, hey, did you know that Dick Cheney was a bad dude? Yes. <laughs> But, yeah, but what if what if we do all of those funny things we did in the big short and kind of like break the fourth wall a bit and like oh we'll we'll do this funny thing where the credits play midway through the movie and we'll all laugh at how clever we're being and like looking back at history and going wasn't that dude bad? Go, yeah, yeah, ho- horrifying man, <laughs> really. Um, wh- what are we learning? What are the lessons we can take forward? Well, it's fun to laugh at him, isn't it? Now. Uh oh okay and and uh, for me bombshell kind of sat a little bit in in the middle in that I I think it's taking it's taking its subject matter a lot more seriously because it has to but it kind it it kind of just feels like this foregone conclusion kind of like comfortable liberal take on like can you can you believe what those conservatives were doing like ah, uh, it's it's just gross, isn't it? And it and it it kind of fails to, for 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 my view, grapple with the wider the wider landscape of the Me Too movement because it's not mm-hmm. like the Fox News thing happened in a bubble. Um, 
and it and it doesn't seem to make any kind of it, it doesn't seem to land on any conclusions either it kind of like it, it kind of ends with a shrug and goes well hey well, well yeah so Sir Roger Ailes moved on um Fox News continues I guess um and Roger Ailes got a got a huge payoff so uh gosh really makes you think doesn't it uh, <laughs> where did yeah, you where saw, did you sit on it, Caroline? <laughs> I saw a bombshell at a press screening with one of my friends who's also a film critic and I just I was like confused conflicted on how I felt throughout the movie. I think it's actually a really good Margot Robbie performance. She was sort of the one I was most yes, I agree. to. And sort of as the credits were rolling, I was like I, I I don't think that quite sat well with me. Maybe I liked some of it. And by the time I was like at the end, you know, went to the bathroom, I was washing my hands. I was like, oh no, I hated that. Like it took me that long. (laughs) It took me like maybe, you know, five to 10 minutes to just like fully process very much. Maybe not even not enjoying the movie, but just like, I don't know if this movie needed to exist in the way it did with the people who made it. Like there's been this bizarre trend of like all these guys who made the, the sort of like, you know, enjoyable, but, like, silly crafts movies in the early 2000s. Like, Jay Roach did the Austin Powers movies and Meet the Parents, and Adam McKay did all the Will Ferrell movies, and now they've gone on to be, like, our prominent, you know, social, political critics that I'm like, I'm not sure and, this was what we needed. <laughs> and, Caroline, lest we forget the the foremost social, political filmmaker, Todd Phillips. Yeah, of course, right. Yeah, that's another <laughs> one. It is bizarre, or the or Peter Farley for our Green Book. Like it is really bizarre oh, that we took everyone who made these sort of you know genre this genre of like crass sort of sex comedies in the two thousands, and now we're like, yes, they are the people we need to comment on race and sexism and politics. And it's like maybe they're not. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I I I do think Margot Robbie's performance in Bombshell is is really good. I I think the movie does not grapple enough with just how evil Fox News is as, like, a piece of state-run propaganda, almost. Like, yeah. it, it, it it understandably, and, and rightly so, wants to say, to explore how these women were, were harassed, which they were, and they're victims and survivors in that sense. But I think it also doesn't want to put into context just what was happening around them. Not that that makes what would happen to them better but just you know you can acknowledge a reality fully and i think the movie in its sort of glib way didn't quite want to do that which of course meant it was nominated for like a million oscars and (laughs) was a weirdly big part of the you know award season conversation last year and because it, it not only does it not really grapple with the wider me too movement it also kind of doesn't really grapple with um what fox news means as a as an entity yeah and you know if you if you didn't have any wider context of megan kelly you'd kind of you kind of think oh like yeah i've got i've got this kind of i've got this respect for her coming out of this movie because uh you know she she went through something she uh she stood up to it went on to be successful in in her field um and when the time came to stand up she stood up um but you know there's no real beyond a little bit of back and forth with uh her 
uh, interactions with Donald Trump during his uh, his campaign bid. Uh, there isn't there isn't really much acknowledgement of what her job entails and the the kind of stuff she propagated through her show, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know whether the movie just couldn't figure out a way to grapple with that and also kind of not undermine the story of of, of women being abused. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but I just think it's you know it's a it's a failing of the movie, and it's a it's a movie that's not I, I that I think is fundamentally not sophisticated enough to be able to reconcile those two conflicting narratives with any nuance. So it just ignores one of them. Yeah, I mean, and, and Charlie's is good. It's it's a performance that's I think good mimicry. The the makeup's creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, Nicole Kidman's good, and and you're right. I think Margot Robbie, who is someone that I've always been a bit cooler on than most people seem to be um i think this is one of the best performances i've seen her give yeah i would say yeah so if you watch bombshell i would say watch it for the margot robbie performance otherwise you should watch charlie staring and long shot which was a much better film that she made last year like a little rom-com with her and seth rogan and if you want a good bombshell in your life watch the ridiculous musical tv show smash in which the fictional marilyn monroe musical that they're creating within the show is called bombshell and in my heart will always be the number one bombshell and not this film <laughs> wonderful Fair. um long shot's fun long shot is uh very charming and, and and again i think um is dealing with republican politics right i think democrat Democrat. Is she a Democrat? I, I thought she was a she Republican. I think is maybe she? the movie's a little bit vague. Okay. Yeah, Not an insightful political commentary, but a very charming romantic comedy. Yeah, and um and Seth Rogan just is on his own face. So There you go. A... Everything you could that's... want in a film. <laughs> that, that doesn't doesn't happen in Bombshell, thankfully. Would have been totally unpleasant. Um okay, so that's what we've been watching this week. Um We will take a short break now and listen to the trailer for Blade Trinity and we'll be back with our super in-depth and detailed discussion of, um, (laughs) (laughs) of the third movie in the Blade franchise. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I have to ask you a couple of questions. What can you tell me about vampires? They exist. First he faced their gods, then he battled their demons, but all that was only the beginning. He's come back. Vampire final solution. You can't win this war alone. Who the hell are you people? My father meant for us to help you. Whistler's daughter. What the hell makes you think you know about hunting vampires? Just for starters, I used to be one. Blade Trinity. There's nothing stopping them now. There's me. Right, guys, Blade Trinity. Um, <laughs> what a treat! <laughs> so, so the, the Blade franchise. Um, I, obviously, um, I, I we've had this conversation off mic in the past, James. I'm not sure whether it's ever bled into the podcast. Blade to me doesn't. So the first movie lands in 1998, and Blade to me doesn't feel like a superhero movie. I know he's a Marvel character, and I know it has some of the it has some of the trappings, but broadly, the the Blade movies have always felt to me like they don't they don't sit sit comfortably alongside the Batman franchise in the 90s, and they don't sit comfortably alongside X Men and spider-man in the 2000s and i think that's why a lot of the time when people talk about the about like you know so you know would talk about black panther and say first black superhero i i kind of get it i and and i kind of understand i i think the blade franchise is worthy of recognition and and respect but i kind of understand why when people even though it's a marvel character don't tie it up in that world yeah i think even even as you say the fact that it's a comic it didn't materially influence the superhero movies that came after it it didn't take inspiration from the ones that came before it like it's very much just a sort of typical action horror um i think it fits within this whole world of like vampire thing like i really think vampire is sort of its own genre like th- i think this obviously buffy which was happening at the same time and even like the underworld franchise which that's I've never the seen, one i feel yes. like part of this universe like yeah, i think I would, it is... de- I would definitely say if, if what is blade more like is it more like underworld or is it more like x-men it, it, it's more like underworld <laughs> and i think the van- like i'm in on the vampire genre as a genre i'm a big I was gonna say Twilight fan. I don't, I'm a big Twilight consumer. I don't know. <laughs> 
I've, I've experienced all of Twilight. I don't know how I come down on it. But I think, like, vampires are a really fun genre to play in and in, and in how differently they're presented in, in all these different incarnations. Yeah, and and, and this is... And, and the Blade stuff is kind of like this um, slightly postmodern take on vampire lore. Uh, it has a lot of fun with with the ideas of vampires and 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 how they might sit within a modern day universe um and the, the first movie i think we, we talked about has some it, it in spite of being a, a stephen norrington picture has um I, I i i'm remembering the kind of the nightclub filled with blood and i think stephen dorff's fun as the villain and i think like wesley it is wesley snipes at full tilt in the first blade movie I, I I remember having a lot of fun with that, and then Blade Two comes along, and it's a Guillermo del Toro movie, and some of the effects are shaky, but I think it's great, and and like the kind of the the kind of uh, the fun little team he's got around him in that one, um, Norman Reedus, I remember being great, and then like mm-hmm. the and the fact that his team around him are kind of they're kind of his mates but kind of not and then you've got people like ron perlman in that movie danny john jules of course um <laughs> donnie yen is it uh, yeah i remember having lots of fun with that as well and then blade trinity comes along in 2004 um so it's it's two years after the last one which has been you know kind of a a, a critical and commercial success, I think, probably, like, minor critical and commercial success, but, you know, successful nonetheless. And Blade Trinity, they bring in David S. Goya, who... Who had written the first... He's, like, an interesting figure in this franchise, because he had... David S. Goya, who, who has gone on to be a big collaborator on the... Christopher Nolan, Batman trilogy, Man of Steel, Batman v Superman. He wrote the Terminator Dark Fate movie that came out recently. But he wrote the first two Blades. Those were sort of like two of his biggest things. And then ends up both writing and directing this one. It was only a second feature he'd ever directed. And I think he's like a very interesting figure in this like... (laughs) You know, obviously he is to some degree. and, And as much as we want to credit a writer with being, you know, the creative force in film which i think it's usually credited with the director but obviously he has such a big force in terms of writing the first two and then it's interesting that this one i think feels so different than the other two even though you know he's the one that's finally behind the camera something gets lost in translation i think in terms of him bringing it to life so this is and we we've talked about goya a lot on this podcast before so to to give kind of a, a potted history of his career um, uh, there's a a bunch of movies early in his career which I haven't seen, so I can't comment on that. But that he he works on as a writer. Uh, and then I think the first one that I I kind of recognise is The Crow, City of Angels. But then is a credited writer on Blade in '98, Blade Two in 2002, um, and also I think crucially Dark City in '98, which which is this mm. which I I really like Dark City. Um, 
but I think I like it because of Alex Proyas's direction uh, and the and the kind of re- really weird, creepy production design. And you know, I like Blade and Blade Two. I think they've got some good zingers in there. I, I I'm not sure whether Goya wrote the zingers, but mostly I like Blade and Blade Two. I think because of Wesley Snipes's performance, and then again those kind of interesting visuals. I don't I don't really look back at those two movies and go, "Wow, that had a fascinating structure," or "Well, this," or, or "Wow, that was telling a really interesting story." It's it's more. No, that is that's that's Blade and that's Wesley Snipes and he's cool and I'm on his adventure with him. This is kind of what I was going to say is that as a certainly as a writer, it's not like David S. Goyer has uh, any kind of identity to him. Like, yeah, you don't recognize a David S. Goyer script. Like they, he seems to turn in sort of functional workmanlike scripts that live or die by how good the director is. Yes, and and so. Or the, or the cast, his, in fairness. But. And you look at his career post-Blade Trinity. So he directs uh, The Invisible and The Unborn. I haven't seen The Invisible, but The Unborn is wretched. Um, then, as a, as a writer, he write, he's one of the credited writers on Batman Begins. I think it's difficult to say, you know, how, how much <laughs> of a voice he is there or, or whether it's just his experience in the genre was, was a, a handy one for Nolan to have have there working alongside him on it. Mm-hmm. Um, he's then credited with the story. With, he has story credits on The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises. Um, he writes Jumper, which is awful. <laughs> he writes Ghost Rider, The Spirit of Vengeance, which is awful. Uh, he writes... Um, on Man of Steel and Batman vs Superman: Dawn of Justice, which I, I don't want to comment on publicly, and um, <laughs> and and then Terminator: Dark Fate, which I I haven't seen yet, but it is uh, he is he is a name that when he comes up and you're uh, you're talking superhero movies in particular, I kind of feel like people kind of go, it's David Escoria again. <laughs> it, it what's interesting about Blade to me is those are. All the other things we mentioned, all the other superhero stuff, at least, I believe he's like a one of of multiple writers. Either either he's working with Christopher Nolan, or he's like one of you know a couple people who work on these things. But with Blade, he's the only credited writer. So I have to imagine that that is like the closest we come to like pure David S. Goyer's <laughs> this yeah. franchise. Um, but yeah, it is fascinating that. And the other thing too, so this movie has a lot a lot of like behind the scenes drama associated with it. And I think apparently, I mean, it's hard to say this is all sort of like, you know, rumor and such. So take it all with a grain of salt, but apparently Wesley Snipes wanted, there was someone else who was supposed to direct who Wesley Snipes didn't like. So they ended up bumping up David Esquire, which I think he also was not happy with. And then they really clashed during the entire filming of it. But yeah, I don't know. I'm just fascinated by him as this like, pseudo auteur of the Blade franchise that then just like totally implodes when he's actually given the keys to the kingdom. <laughs> I'm reminded of Simon Kinberg on the X-Men Yeah, films. totally. I had yes. the exact same Like thought. being a fairly strong creative voice all the way through and then just not so much dropping the ball as, you know, taking a pair of scissors to it when given <laughs> the actual freedom that they want. I should I should also add, by the way, for context, um, because I'm sure our listeners would be furious if I didn't. 
Um, Goyer also wrote Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem like his the amount of comic book work he's done is is the selling point where they go, well, he's done all these comic book films, so he knows what he's mm-hmm. doing. And it's like, well, and technically he does. Clearly he's a big fan of the genre, but also, have you seen some of them? Yeah. They see, I mean, it's at best they are competent scripts, right? Yeah, and I don't think you can say that of Blade Trinity. <laughs> no. Blade Trinity, here's what I, so I had a, I was not super familiar with the Blade franchise at all. I think last year when I was on the Cuppies, because I knew we were going to talk about Blade 2 because you guys had covered it, I was like, okay, I need to finally dig into this franchise. <laughs> I re- I was just all in on the first Blade movie. I really, really like that movie. I'm a little bit more mixed on Blade 2, and I actually think... Like, Blade 2 overall works way better, but I think some of the problems I have with Blade Trinity sort of start in Blade 2 and are then carried over and exaggerated. But I had always heard that this was the worst one, and I was thinking it was going to be bad in sort of like a fun way, in the way that, you know, I think Spider-Man 3 has a reputation as being bad, but even when it's bad, is like always interesting. And that's <laughs> what I thought Blade Trinity was going to be, and I was like, oh no, this is bad in in that it's just boring and like borderline incompetent, but not in a like fun engaging we can laugh at it so bad it's good thing and that was like a i don't know i was just ready for this to be a almost like a catwoman level like oh this is fun to laugh at it and instead i was like oh i'm just struggling to follow slash stay awake while watching what (laughs) feels like a weirdly sleepy film yeah i i i in fact i messaged james whilst i was watching it saying i'm struggling to stay awake yeah. it's it's an hour and 40 minutes long but it feels like it's two and a half hours long mm-hmm. um it 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 has a clearly disengaged star and when i talked about earlier having you know no desire really to go back and watch the first two is because wesley snipes has none of that He's just he he seems so disengaged, and the movie feels so weighted against him in terms of screen time compared to the other two because we're devoting so much time to Ryan Reynolds and Jessica Biel. But I think we're devoting so much time to them because because you know, <laughs> that was the only usable footage. Yeah, and and so it maybe maybe there was a more competent version. Of this of of this film on paper when Goya wrote it and just wasn't able to physically film it, um, but yeah, it's it's horrible. It looks horrible. Um, it's like I, I couldn't I couldn't like point to any one shot composition in this movie and go, yeah, that that looks great. Apart from maybe you know well done for showing off Ryan Reynolds abs because <laughs> he's in good shape in this film he's, I he's, also he's... noticed that <laughs> yeah but then also they give him a beard he, they give him a, a such a weirdly shaped right? beard it's I'm, almost I'm like a proto Tony Stark you know like they were yeah. figuring out what they wanted this to look like <laughs> but it's too fluffy and his hair's yeah. too fluffy as well mm-hmm. and I, I and I, I I wouldn't have said this back when I was in my Ryan Reynolds obsessed phase, but he's bad in this movie because they're, they're, they're not feeding him with good enough quality of lines to, to have the amount of cocky bravado that Ryan Reynolds (laughs) has at his best. Like your writing needs to match that, that ego. And 
it doesn't here and there's a lot there's a lot of stuff that that seems like it's you know he's he's kind of rattling out these subpar quips mm-hmm. um and and you're like you're like right okay and so are, are we going to get to the depth with this character because that's when i think reynolds is good is when he has that he has that just like i'm a dick energy uh, but you peel it away, and you know. I think in the first Deadpool, you see yeah, this. where he has the um, the second dimension. <laughs> yes, wait, well, I think it's you know that that character. You need to chip away at that snark uh, for Reynolds to be interesting, and they tease that they're going to here, and instead they just replicate that with what if he gets beaten up a lot in the third <laughs> act? Because <laughs> none of these characters go anywhere like uh, there's this is was the idea supposed to be that so ryan reynolds plays hannibal king was the idea supposed to be that he was a rich that he has been a vampire and he's turned back i was Was very confused about yeah many elements of this film but that (laughs) element in particular like the basic setup for this film if you haven't seen it or don't remember it which to be fair i watched it yesterday and i don't remember it so um (laughs) You have Blade, his uh, mentor, uh, Whistler, Chris Christopherson Chris is is killed. So then he has to team up with this again. group of young, yeah, again, this group of young vampire hunters called the Night Stalkers, most prominently of which is Hannibal <laughs> King, who's Ryan Reynolds, and Jessica Biel, who is Whistler's hitherto unknown daughter. He had some point <laughs> after his original family or, was killed. Or as I kept his... thinking of her in my head, uh, Whistler's mother. um so they yeah so her backstory is that she you know is sort of going into the family business of vampire hunting she's seemingly caught up with her dad at some point in adulthood off screen and then what what it this movie to me feels like it had like three different scripts that were all intercut together and no one did a pass trying to make them all make sense (laughs) like you sort of have one movie that's about Dracula coming back from the dead because he's the original vampire. You have one movie that's about this like vampire final solution where they're trying to just kidnap people and use them as blood bags. And then you have like, I don't know, one movie that's about Blade bonding with these, this young team that he has. Um, And so Ryan Reynolds, Hannibal King's like a sensible backstory is that he had been working with slash romancing Parker Posey's who's like the second slash first tier villain of this in a way that is clearly presented to be he was her familiar because he's branded with the tattoo of that all Mm -hmm. of the familiars like the human you know little servants Mm -hmm. that the vampires have but every time he talks about it he says that he used to be a vampire like to me this is very clearly they had one draft where he was a vampire and one draft where he was a familiar and they didn't ever (laughs) bother to decide which one it was so i've got i've got the quote from the movie and i think this is probably indicative of why it is so hard to pick up so this is delivered in trademark ryan reynolds patter I picked up Danica in a bar and spent the next five years playing hide-and-go-suck as her little vampire cabana boy. Eventually, Abigail found me, Summerfield managed to treat me with a cure, and now I kill them. And that's basically turning a frown upside down. And because Reynolds is delivering that as a, as you know, a, a cheeky, quippy little monologue, none of that gets across. But what he's saying there is, 
I got turned into a vampire. These guys found me. They cured me. And now I hunt them. But that doesn't... It it doesn't really come across in the movie. To the point where in the second half I was going... So was he a... Yeah, was he a vampire? Was he a familiar? And, And if he was a vampire and he was cured... Wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't that be a big deal? Yeah, wouldn't that be a big deal? And we wouldn't be leading towards vampire genocide at the end of the movie, rather than we could be the we could be the bene- benevolent vampire cure guys. <laughs> I do think the idea of a vampire cure is introduced in the first film, but my memory is that it was more for when you're in your sort of transitional period where you're a human yeah. slowly turning into a vampire, you can sort of stop that process mid stream and and you know reverse it and become a human it didn't feel i mean i might be misremembering this but it didn't feel to me like it was just an option for all vampires but even the confusing thing about that like quote you just read like because there is this whole like half of this movie is about these human familiars who are just regular everyday humans who are just super devoted to vampires which again like if you say vampire cabana boy that to me implies like you are a familiar yes then taking a cure implies you were a vampire so and but and the only people that have the little tattoos are the familiars i don't think the vampires have those and his defining thing is the tattoo which is placed in the in a place where he has to sort of pull down his pants to show it, and every time I was like, "Where are we going with this? This is a, <laughs> this is an interesting gesture to make your hero have to do multiple times." But I really just feel like this script was was so many things that got shoved together, and and in fact, I, I so I was trying to go deep into sort of like the troubled production history of this film, and I think originally the main idea of the film was going to be this idea of vampires. They call it the vampire final solution that they're going to like have been essentially stealing homeless people, you know, marginalized people. And just like, it's kind of horrifying, but just like putting them into vacuum sealed bags and drinking their blood. That was going to be what the whole movie was about, but the studio decided that was too dark. And so then they switched to this Dracula concept, which then gets grafted on, but some of the other stuff is still left in. So I think this was literally just so many ideas thrown together and no one cared to make them cohesive. You could very easily remove the Dracula element from this movie entirely and it and it wouldn't affect much. Which is crazy because he's Dracula. Like, obviously, <laughs> if you're going to do that, that should be... He should matter. It should matter. Yeah, and so Dra- this is... Let's, let's talk Dracula. So Dracula say, in this yeah. movie is played by um, Dominic Purcell, who um, I guess... When I first saw this movie, because I, I didn't see it on release, when I first saw this movie, he was best known to me as uh, not the other bald one in Prison Break. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I guess I guess now he's best known for Legends of Tomorrow and his mm-hmm. associated role, and that role throughout the various shows in the in the Flowerverse. Um, this this actually hits the year before prison break um so is he it's shocking to see him with hair i like almost i always like is this who i think it is like i've only ever seen him either in photos of of prison break or as mickey rourke in the sort of you know legends broader universe as well he'll always pop up in the crossovers and stuff and I was legitimately, like, I, my brain couldn't process seeing him <laughs> slightly younger and with hair. It was like a weird optical illusion. <laughs> and and he's clearly cast here as sexy Dracula. I mean, he's called Drake. 
He's not. He's not Dracula. Dracula. He's Drake. And it's yeah, it's. it's a, well, do you want to, so the weird... idea of this is that, it, just to explain the plot again, like at the beginning, we have Parker Posey is sort of, she's like sort of an evil vampire leader, and their plan is to wake up Dracula. They sort of, he's been asleep under this tomb or whatever. They wake him up, bring him into the modern world. Unclear why they kind of do that, but that's part of their plan. And then he becomes sort of all, he and Parker Posey are like equally unimportant villains but yeah. ostensibly the two <laughs> villains of this film and the the idea seems to be from a from a design point of view that we're, we're gonna subvert your idea of what dracula is he's kind of this big hulking mm-hmm. physical threat rather than your kind of tall skinny gone dracula your your Bella Lugosi and old as well, right? Your Bella Lugosi's, your Christopher Lee's, your your Nosferatu, uh, Dracula. It's it's more, it's it's yeah. Hey, he's young, he's buff, he's sexy, and he's going to be a physical threat for Blade. Um, except the movie at no point is able to establish why Dracula would be a threat to Blade. Um, he also transforms between this kind of monstrous form which we see him in right at the start and then right at the end during the fight. And it's only when he transfers back to that form that you go, oh, right, okay, so he's strong when he's like this. Why Why hasn't he been this the whole time? Because for the rest of the movie, he exclusively, um, and in a kind of gross way, preys on young, attractive women. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there is a... I think there's an unpleasant subtext there. Um, but you never see him fight. The only action, the only encounter and action sequence that he has with Blade during the course of the movie is him running away from Blade (laughs) and then throwing a baby off a building so that Blade won't chase him. But there's, there's nothing that ever establishes him as a threat. So when they're going to get him at the end, you're going, I've watched Blade in three movies. I know he's a badass. Um, the, Literally, the only thing that makes Dracula seem imposing is that you're saying it's Dracula, <laughs> but he's no more impressive than any vampire we've met at any at any point during this three movie franchise. It's yeah, bizarre. And, they, and they try to subvert the idea of Dracula so much that there's almost no point in calling him Dracula. Like, I think you're totally right that they're like, we're going to do something different with him, but at, at that point, it's like, well, then he's not Dracula. <laughs> like, he is just kind of a buff guy that's running around in a low v-neck shirt and he and he doesn't seem particularly invested in the modern day vampires plot and then at the end of the movie seems to have this weird begrudging respect for blade and it's like oh you're the, you're the future right. of vampires it was you, you were the future of vampires all along it's, it's fine that it's fine that you've killed me there is i, I just like... don't know what is i don't know what his shtick is even What's he want? There's just such an apathy to every character in this film that I feel like maybe stems from the production of this film. But it's like they really couldn't lock into what each character wants and make that consistent. And then because of that, they couldn't figure out how to write a plot. And so it's just things happening. And all of a sudden you're like, wait, are there only 10 minutes left in this movie? Like there's (laughs) never really been a plot. I think part of the, the problem, it's 
it's unclear what the Parker Posey sort of like group of vampires want. On the one hand, they're sort of trying to publicly frame Blade by having him kill. They're sort of have, they're having their familiars dress up as vampires in order to stage a situation where he is caught killing a human and then the FBI will arrest him. And you're like, okay, I could sort of see that being a plan. And then it also turns out that within the FBI, they have planted a lot of their familiars, so they have a direct way to get to him and stop him. That all makes sense. But then simultaneously, we have the same Parker Posey group of vampires waking up Dracula and telling him they need him to stop Blade. So that's like a whole second, like, opposite wing of their plan. I guess they just wanted two plans. And then Dracula himself is sort of, he gets woken up and he's like, well, I don't really care about your plan. I don't really respect you. I just want to be my own thing. Which could be cool if maybe he ended up taking over the group or if they did something with that apathy, but instead he's just weirdly apathetic to everything that happens, similarly to Blade. And then it turns out that the the good guys, these Night Stalkers, the sort of Jessica Biel, Ryan Reynolds group, they end up needing Dracula's blood to create this bioweapon that will kill all vampires, in which case I actually think it would have been much more interesting if their group was the one that had woken up Dracula to begin with, where it was sort of like, you know, Mm -hmm. we have to awaken the greatest evil in in order to get rid of all vampires. And then maybe he becomes, you know, this sort of unexpected element that's running throughout the film, but instead. Or, and, or he's the one that comes back and is like, uh, so that they've woken him, he reappears and then finds the bad vampires and is like, look, they've brought me back to try and wipe you out. I'm I'm here to show up. you your future. I'm here to show you your future. Here's this blood bank idea. <laughs> right, right. I mean, these are basically... all good revisions of the scripts that you imagine would have been made if they had a better writer. Right. Yeah. Okay. And though, so maybe we should go into sort of because I spent I was like, what are we going to talk about for this episode? So I just went deep on reading all of the different production shenanigans that were going on. I think what seems to be just like factually true is that Wesley Snipes was very, very checked out during the entire shooting of this film. Did not like to participate in it unless it was, you know, if it was a group scene and they were filming someone else's coverage, he would only have his stand in there. I think a lot of the shots, like, of the back of his head are his stand-in. A lot of shots even from of his full body might be his stand-in that they've, like, CGI'd his face onto. He would do his close-ups, but not much else. He was, like, not very... He, he did not have a team spirit during the making of this film. I think we're the... So I think that's sort of agreed upon. I think we're and the... I yeah, think it's I think it's also very visible in the yeah. film that, that it's not Wesley Snipes a lot of the time. I mean, the action sequences <laughs> that you are cutting from close-ups of Wesley Snipes' face and, you know, it's very fast cuts for the action. So you will be cutting from Wesley Snipes' face to a, a dude who seems a lot who uh, seems like a couple of inches taller and uh, and less stocky than Wesley Snipes in the action scene, and then cutting back, and then cut, and you're you're flicking between the two of them. You're going, these are not the same people. Yeah. You can't. I I know that Blade has a distinctive haircut and tattoos, but also I, that's Wesley Snipes, and Wesley Snipes himself is quite a distinctive looking man. This 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 isn't going to stand. Um. But I mean, I obviously whether whether the fault of that lays at Snipes, I'm, I'm sure it's a, a, it feels like probably a group effort. Right. Well, but... this is kind of what I was going to say. So I feel like the agreed upon facts are that he was he was not invested in the filming of this 
movie. But where things diverge is that the David S. Goyer point of view, which I think is the point of view shared by the cast and crew who seemed to be a little bit more on his side. But he basically was like, you know, we wanted to make this movie. Wesley was not invested in it. So we sort of had to on the fly rewrite rewrite and rework a lot of things and bump up Ryan Reynolds and Jessica Biel. And there's a Patton Oswalt interview actually at the AV club where he talks about how a lot of like Ryan Reynolds quips were just them sort of coming up with things for him to say on set. And so that from their point of view, it's like the reason a lot of this movie doesn't work is because Wesley wasn't invested, but the Wesley Snipes point of view, which I think might have some validity to it as well, is that basically when like he knew that this script was bad, he didn't want to work with this cast or this set of directors, but he was basically just forced to do this film. And so Mm -hmm. that his apathy is less just something that's innate to him and more like, I mean, maybe an immature, but in a reaction to the fact that he knew that this was going to be bad. Um, and I think he was frustrated. So from so from David S. Goyer's point of view, the reason we have so much Jessica Biel and Ryan Reynolds and so little uh, Blade is because um, Wesley Snipes didn't want to participate. But from Wesley Snipes' point of view, the reason he didn't want to participate is because he felt like these supporting characters were being lifted up over his character. Um, mm. And... And he was frustrated with, like, the tone of the Ryan Reynolds comedy of the, you know, the the quippiness of that. Um, so it is, like, a real interesting chicken or the egg situation. And actually, the, I think the year after the film was released, Snipes sued um, New Line, saying essentially that, like, he was... Par- part of what he said was that he wasn't paid his full salary, that basically uh, he wasn't given any creative control in the way you would sort of expect someone who's the lead of this trilogy to be given you know, given how big his role were, his role in the franchise had been, and that also he was really frustrated with the lack of diversity in the cast, which I think is also a good point. Like, Yeah, I mean, that was like a... that was one of my takeaways from the movie is, who watched the first two Blade movies and went, do you know what, we need, we need two co-leads and they both need to be white. <laughs> right. So I think, you know, from Wesley Sainz's point of view, these were the frustrations that led him to be not invested in the making of the film. And like, I think this is a situation where probably there's truth in, in all sides in this to some degree. But yeah, I do think that this was just like, bound <laughs> bound for badness from the beginning like they didn't yeah. have any foundation to start with and that it just like spiraled out of control from there i also i think it'd be interesting to take a little bit of a step back and and look at wesley snipes's career because i, I do think that that the blade trilogy is fascinating for snipes now james are you, are you, you're a snipes fan right or i i know certainly because we've been talking recently you're a demolition man fan I'm a Demolition Man fan. I wouldn't say I'm a huge Wesley Snipes fan. Like my my problem with the original Blade, I think I liked it less than you guys. Was just that like, yeah, having Wesley Snipes sort of say cool things and pose wasn't my idea of a good time. And that's <laughs> mostly what Blade One was. I quite like Blade Two. That had a story. Um, but yeah, this this one reminds me more of Blade One than Two. Oh, I mean, this one just reminds me of of nothing. <laughs> See, I would I, actually, I would say it reminds me more of Blade Two because I think one of the things I disliked about Blade Two was that it made it much more of an ensemble story with Blade as one of a sort of ensemble of quirky characters. And I think in Blade yeah. Two, the characters are engaging enough that it sort of gets away with it. Yeah, but in I guess Blade I'm... Three, I think that they sort of like take that further. Like, it really does feel like Blade is barely a character in Blade Trinity, and I think that was. Like, they had sort of started to lean into that in Blade 2. It's I like think. he's just the muscle that gets brought in at the end. Yeah. It's more just that, like, there are a lot of action scenes and they're all just about saying cool things and posing. Yeah. 
I so you look at you look at Wesley Snipes' career, right? So I think from Major League uh, in '89, and then he does King of New York, Mo Better Blues, New Jack City, Jungle Fever. Um, skipping through the decade, you've got massive hits: uh, White Men Can't Jump, uh, Demolition Man. He's got Money Train, and then U.S. Marshals in '98. And really, the 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 Snipes star is on the wane by the late '90s. Like he's, I think he's, I think he's at his peak probably around Demolition Man in terms of his, in in terms of like how how bright his star is shining, and so weirdly when he stars in Blade in nineteen ninety eight, which is like right okay, here is a, a franchise. You are the lead. You are the iconic like center of this thing like you're you're visually iconic you are you you're, you're gonna get these incredible lines and quips the whole thing is about you um and it works and it's success and people like it but that's also kind of the point where people stop caring about wesley snipes in other movies yeah. and so you, you i mean you look at snipes's career from blade through to blade trinity and it's it not that I mean I've not seen all these movies, and not that there might not be good performances and and like minor successes in there, but it's it's kind of undeniable that it's it's on the wane by then. And but and then you know you look you look post Blade Trinity, and obviously there is there's all his all of his problems away from the screen after that as well, and mm. and, and and the time he spends um, in prison. But um, it's for tax evasion, if anyone hadn't. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> I've been following, but it is for a very it, weird form of tax evasion. That's like a he his like legal history is also fascinating to dig into because he basically <laughs> took a principled stance against the notion of paying taxes under the idea that like you should not have to participate in government if you choose not to. Like it was a very I'm, it's a weirdly philosophical argument, but did ultimately result in him having. And to I believe as well that he, I I believe he made an argument uh, along the lines of like I was following the financial advice of my advisors which is very similar to most people in hollywood and um why am i the one that you're coming after which (laughs) maybe they outponed him (laughs) but maybe they just wanted him to stop making blade movies (laughs) Uh, but so i mean he did it's just a shame he he stopped after blade (laughs) 2 it's brilliant uh, <laughs> it's it's just it's fascinating to me that like i can i can totally understand this dude getting to this movie and kind of like going uh, like my career is almost in crisis at this point this is all i've got left and what the fuck is this like why yeah. why are you why are you sitting me next to ryan reynolds and uh, like who is basically just let loose to do his Van Wilder shtick. That's it's it's what if you were Van Wilder but kind of um instead of cool you were a sexy vampire hunter. And he just rolls with it and then Jessica Bill gets brought in. I feel like uh, I feel like Buffy is the obvious comparison because she's a vampire hunter. Mhm. Mm-hmm. But really, the the overwhelming vibe I was getting from this was Jennifer Garner in Alias. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It was... It... it, it yeah. She she had a, a similar energy, I think. Um, and I, I, I don't... You know, whereas I think kind of Reynolds is not great in this because it, it, it doesn't play into... Or it doesn't it doesn't attach any more depth to what he's good at. Which, you know, Van Wilder's not the most um complicated, nuanced movie in the world, but it at least gets that that can't be the whole thing to his character, otherwise it doesn't work. Whereas Jessica Beale opposite him just gets just gets nothing. She has no it, it's right, you're your whistler's secret daughter. Yes. Okay. And and then what what drives you what motivates you what interests you um like what are your relationships in in terms of other people like um do you get on with Hannibal King who is your your kind of your your buddy here i i i don't know any of these things i, yeah. I i've watched the movie i don't know anything about her and then it seems like she exists to have her midriff exposed um, and then the the most gross moment in this movie for me is when Blade is brought into the Night Stalkers gang and you are introduced to a load of people. You're like, oh, Natasha Leone. Oh, that person, that person. And then Patton Oswalt comes on and delivers a couple of lines and goes, uh, gentlemen and hottie. Yeah. <laughs> when looking at Jessica Biel and you just go, ah. Oh. That I mean, that is, that is literally what this movie thinks of that character, because then she doesn't she doesn't get anything to do at the end either. She's just she's not face she she doesn't have like Hannibal King has these relationships with the villains or this history with the villains that he's mm-hmm. playing on, and it's like it's personal between him him and Parker Posey and Triple H, um, <laughs> <laughs> but like her she just kind of she runs in she saves the girl that has been kidnapped because there needs to be a girl who's been kidnapped um and then and then she's kind of done it is a movie i mean you would think i think i think blade in particular is a franchise that can really function along formulaic plot lines because as you guys mentioned it is really about like the energy the performances the like style of it and so you would think okay let's just write a basic formulaic script and do what we can stylistically, but they don't even get the basic formulaic script. Like it feels like it's setting up at the beginning. Whistler's like blade. I'm worried about you being alone. And so you think, okay, his mentor dies. The end result will be, he ends up being the mentor to this group of scrappy vampire hunters. That never happens. None of the characters have relationships to one another. No (laughs) one has an arc. No one, you know, there's not even like a base level for anyone to play. So it does come down to like, okay, you know, you be quippy, Ryan Reynolds, and you try to look cool, Jessica Biel. And, and you know, I think I really almost found Ryan Reynolds unwatchable in this movie just because I was like, oh, mm. he, like, Deadpool is just, I don't know. It made Deadpool feel much less innovative to me. I was like, oh, he just does this one thing. I don't totally hate Jessica Biel in this movie. I always find her pretty watchable. No, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not me criticizing her in any way. It's, yeah. it's she is, she is given nothing yeah and, sure. and so i can only imagine i mean i mean because i do like i i think ryan reynolds is bad but i have so much sympathy for you know kind of everyone involved in this movie oh, because completely, yeah. you, you look at you i mean i i mentioned ryan reynolds abs earlier and he is 
cut like a freaking steak in this movie. <laughs> but Jessica Biel's biceps as well. I was like, holy shit, these guys must have put in a lot of work to prepare for this movie because they weren't action people before this. They've got super, super buff to star in this action movie. Um to no end to a movie that must have been thoroughly miserable for everyone to make with the director and star refusing to talk to each other um you forgot that that uh jessica biel's character does get one personality trait which is that she likes to make playlists on itunes before she goes into battle and we see like a close-up of her like checking and unchecking songs for her playlist (laughs) which was a fascinating glimpse into the culture of 2004 Hannibal King likes to watch William Shatner's Esperanto movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah I don't that uh, that Here, some just a, weird I weird ha- character shorthands that you like. If we give them this quirk, they'll be interesting, right? Nope. I have one compliment, big compliment for this film. There's one part where they're in a hallway and Jessica Biel's wearing a leather jacket, and she needs to shoot her bow and arrow. And so to do so, she literally, like, unzips the side of the sleeves of her jacket, and it, like, becomes a cape. And it was honestly the coolest thing I've ever seen, and I, like, <laughs> lived on that moment for a full two-thirds of this movie. It was such a cool moment of costume design, and, like, very practical in terms of her being able to shoot. I was so into that. I also really feel like it's a strong possibility that Joss Whedon stole all of this movie for Hawkeye's, like, entire shtick. <laughs> like, I know I know, having a bow and arrow was a pretty common trope in action movies, but there was something about the specificity of how her bow and arrow worked, and even the moment she shoots a bow and arrow, but Dracula catches it, and I was like, this is exactly what happens in Avengers. Like, they really, <laughs> very, I don't know, it felt so, so specific Hawkeye in Avengers to me. And I was like, did Joss Whedon just watch this movie? And, and he was like, yes, this is what I will, this is where I will get my inspiration for Hawkeye. I mean, if if something had to come from it, thank God it was Hawkeye. <laughs> <laughs> You're right though, the, the 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 mechanical bow is kinda cool. It's a bow with it's a bow with uh, what, what did they say? Half the heat of the sun. And I went, yeah. mm, no. No. Yeah, because she has that yeah, it's like part it can become like I don't know. It's almost like a Klingon like batleth, but with like a laser. Yeah, she uses it as like a the deadliest thing. violin bow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was an, I don't know. I mean, half of this movie is just like Patton Oswalt describing various pieces of like weaponry that they're going to use. Because <laughs> I guess they were like, that's something we can write. But to their credit, some of the weaponry is kind of interesting. I did find it fascinating though, right? So we have so many of these recognisable faces in in supporting roles here. So, and, and, and almost to a man you go... Why have you cast this person if this is what you want to do with them? Yeah. Like, what what did they see from everything Natasha Lyonne had done in her career up to this point to go, do you know what you would be really interesting as? Um, boring, sits in front of computer tech person um, who you're basically like the, you're, you're this stake setting sacrifice just just before the third act they don't let her do any of the natasha leone stuff yeah she doesn't have any edge here and then similarly 
um, Patton Oswalt is just oh d- deliver that one sexist line and then a bit of exposition. Um, John Michael Higgins, so we because we, you know we know how funny John Michael Higgins can be, and here he's just he's just kind of like he plays it straight, apart from that one shot where it turns out he's actually Dracula, and it's not actually that he's doing anything spectacular there. It's just that you need him to have a little bit of an edge of oh, it's the reveal is that that's not him. Parker Posey, I don't think I've ever seen... I I, mean, I think she comes the closest to having some of her actual energy in her performance. Um, and then Triple H, I can, I can only say, met my expectations. So, yeah. <laughs> as, as Jarko Grimwood. What a name. Well, and again, this feels like it would be so easy. Like, the easier thing would just be to do the formulaic thing of like this is how this ensemble works together these are their little dynamics this is you know and and but they don't even do it's like they can't even do the first step of the lazy formulaic thing i it's like it's one of those movies where it's like you're like what did it spend its runtime doing because i can i can tell you what it didn't do but it also is like I, i think almost two hours like what yeah what 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 it's one of those movies that just like slips through your mind and you're like what did it spend its time doing? I did like that Natasha. I, I, Leon's... I, I, I genuinely that's John. It's a great question because I genuinely can't. I'm sitting here going, "What? What did fill those two hours?" Right. Some sort of very poorly filmed action scenes. I think this is a movie that feels like it has really about five filmed. different opening scenes that each could have worked as the opening scene, but instead it's like that Suicide Squad thing of like we just keep doing the same <laughs> keep, reintroduction yeah. scenes over and over. Um, and then, it feels guess... like it feels like TV level action, but like yeah, but less but less competent. So that's where I got the alias vibe. I mean, who on earth thought that at the start of a Blade movie, what we really wanted to see was a car chase with Blade? Yeah, right. Yeah. And I, I, again, I can only assume. Well, if Blade's in a car, then we don't need to. You know, we don't need Wesley here, so we can we can shoot this. Um, it's. I said, I said this to James when I was watching it, and I I don't know whether this will mean anything to you, Caroline. But visually, I mean, like for for everything that we've said negative about this movie so far in terms of uh, performances, writing, um, just the basic execution of its confusing story, none of that is as bad as how this movie looks. It just <laughs> looks so depressing it is such an it's such an unpleasant movie to spend time in it it reminded me of (laughs) the overwhelming vibe i got from it was the um you wouldn't steal a car so why would you steal a movie uh anti-piracy campaign that we got in the uk in the early 2000s we had something similar Uh, but the like just this, this kind of slightly scuzzy, but like with an edge of high tech, because there's a dude downloading something on his computer. Um, you know, at, at, at the time, I always remember the irony of having to watch that over and over again on the DVDs that I had purchased. I don't, th- I don't think, I don't think anyone has ever illegally downloaded a movie and they should, and they show that warning in front of it. Uh, <laughs> That's a very good point. Um, 
But I also yeah, think just, in it, it, describing how bad this is, it makes it sound more interesting than it is. Like, for as bad as it is, yeah. there is also some level of competency that just makes it boring. Like, I think it this could is, have been worse and been more interesting. This is not a Howard T. Duck Award no. uh, contender. It's just... It's just bad. Um, it's just... It, it, it feels really perfunctory like everyone's going through the motions and um, <laughs> almost everyone <laughs> everyone's going through the motions if if they are present to go through the motions <laughs> uh, and it and it just yeah it ends as a it's just such a damp script of a movie the one thing that i always remember um and apologies in advance, Caroline, because although this is an American movie, this is a word that obviously we Brits are a lot more comfortable just using casually. I I call my friends it all the time. Um, the the one thing that was always said about this movie was, God, what a disaster! But hasn't it got one of the best swear words <laughs> in like use of swearing in a movie? Which is the line where um, Ryan Reynolds. Uh, I and I couldn't work. Do you know what? Watching this back, I couldn't work out who it was directed at. But he <laughs> shouts, um, "You cock juggling thundercunt!" Which there is just a, a cadence to that that works. Um, but, but like I remembered, like that being a thing that everyone was and I, and I bought into was like, yeah, great use of movie swearing. Uh, you don't often hear that word in it's, movies it's definitely the thing i knew about the movie before i'd seen anything else about it i remember <laughs> what a legacy yeah i remember my friend's little sister saying that she wanted to go and see it when she was like 12 or something and i was like you can't see that movie because he says this in it which at the time obviously i thought was hilarious <laughs> yeah but, um... but but then watching it back the execution of it is awful so Hannibal's <laughs> having this banter with uh, Parker Posey about she's like um, he's like oh I've got I've got a homing device secluded above, uh, about my person somewhere and she's like oh where is it he's like oh it's on my bum and then she goes no I punch you no it's not ah oh, yeah no you're right it's on it's on the <laughs> other side of my bum and then she punches him again. And um, and then she's like, "Enough! It's not funny anymore." To which we're all nodding along in agreement. <laughs> um, and then I'll read you the line. So Hannibal says, "No, it's not you, horse humping bitch." Which I, I immediately kind of went, "Oh, I know she's a vampire, mate, but there's no need to bring sexism into it." And then he's, "Yeah, but it will be a few seconds from now. See that tickle you're feeling in the back of your throat? Um, it's atomized colloidal silver." Uh, it's been pumped through the building's air conditioning systems. You cock juggling thunder cunt, and I was I was remembering it as this great crescendo moment, and it's kind of just lost in the middle of the scene, and right next to one of the the worst insults that I've ever heard anyone use in cinema. Horse humping bitch is is terrible. <laughs> Doesn't even make sense. No, dogs are too small. um so i just wanted to call that out which is i think one of the few legacies of this movie um has been has been vastly overstated um and just just because it rolls off the tongue well does not does not make it a good moment in this movie i do feel like the one thing i had heard about this movie was ryan reynolds 
and I could never quite get a sense of if people liked him in this movie or didn't like him in this movie. I'm still a little bit unclear. Like, look, you know, looking back, I think it's so weird to watch this now because it literally is just Deadpool. And it's so, it's like, right? I yeah. don't know. It's, it's like almost unnerving or something. Like I had to go, I went and rewatched the trailers for Green Lantern and definitely maybe to be like, wait, does Ryan Reynolds only do this one thing? And, and those movies like, you know, clearly he does the same thing, but those are where at least a little more different. Like this is just Deadpool. I think the the, uh, the opening intro voiceover doesn't help it not feel like Deadpool. Oh does yeah, because you're just like, like wait, jarring. this is how all the Deadpool movies start. And that, I, I c- can we go deep on Ryan Reynolds because yeah. I feel like this <laughs> I is. I would expect nothing less. This is my you. opportunity. <laughs> so, um, I stand Ryan Reynolds for a long time. Um, I have been intensely disappointed by what his career became post Deadpool. Um, because this is this is a guy that I kind of fought for a long time. You are so much better than the movies you're in. And when you choose interesting projects, you show that you're a much more talented actor than than how pretty you are and quippy you are would suggest. But you look at what he's done since Deadpool, he's he's making movies like um the hitman's bodyguard um and uh the and six underground and uh forget detective pikachu (laughs) well so yeah basically uh, just deadpool for children but pikachu uh detective pikachu is wonderful Um, oh i love detective pikachu i have some questions about i mean right now isn't bad but it's not it's not what I wanted from my Pikachu, you know. <laughs> I, I would also say the the Ryan Reynolds of it all is the thing that comes closest to kind of breaking the yeah. logic of the entire thing. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm just disappointed that he's he's not he's not gone. All right, I want to go back to being able to kind of do these interesting movies in between. You know, like the year before Deadpool, he's in Mississippi Grind with Ben Mendelsohn, which. Mm-hmm. And the problem was with Reynolds is he always had like three or four of those movies to to hit the one that was really good, like a Mississippi Grind, um, but would kind of give that kind of crappy performance in a lot of other stuff. But like, wouldn't you love Ryan Reynolds to turn back up in another rom-com? Sure. Yeah. Or something like Adventureland that sort of yeah. critiques his persona a little bit. I mean, I don't hate Ryan Reynolds. I think, like you're saying, he can be charming when used well. I really love Blake Lively, so I feel like that forces me to kind of like Ryan Reynolds by association. Um, but I think... It but I... I for, for Blade Trinity, though, Caroline. So he's yeah. he's coming into Blade Trinity off the back of, basically, he is Berg in Two Guys, A Girl, and a Pizza Place. I don't know if you guys were a, were a fan of that sitcom. Never watched no. it. But I have uh, heard of it. I loved two guys a girl in a pizza place uh which I've, it gets renamed just two guys and a girl after the first season uh which is weirdly when they add in um a pizza place a, 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 no they <laughs> so the, the pizza the pizza place is removed and replaced with a second guy uh played by nathan fillion so he becomes the the titular girl's boyfriend um so you've got pete and berg and sharon and then nathan gets nathan fillion gets added in um as as a, a, a you know, a charming doofus as as ever for Nathan Fillion. So he has that. That ends in two thousand and one. In two thousand and two, he does Van Wilder, and then and so basically, right, coming into Blade Trinity, that is his shtick. Like his Van Wilder character 
is uh is is just his two guys and a girl character but with the the coolness amped up but both of those both of those properties understand that the the best way to work with someone who is that handsome and that charming and that kind of um absurdly charismatic is that you need to keep undercutting that guy and the whole the whole shtick of van wilder which um you know, I, I would I, I would still broadly stand up for as a fun, gross out scene comedy of the early two thousands. Um is that Van Wilder might be the coolest guy on campus, but also how fucking pathetic is it that this guy won't graduate college, that he just keeps coming back year after year to party with increasingly younger people. <laughs> um and, and and that to me has always been the the more interesting way to deal with Ryan Reynolds. Um, and and I think Blade Trinity was the movie that almost like breaks his movie star ascent because it it it, it felt like it was undeniable. Blade, Blade Trinity is such a disaster, and he kind of retreats back to doing to doing kind of smaller middle middle tier stuff. But a lot of um, you know a mix of so you look at he's got stuff like just friends and waiting and definitely maybe and and later the proposal which i think is the i think the proposal is the thing that weirdly kicks his his career back into the second ascent uh before well, that I is know he that has, is I think I'm taken down can, i think i'm conflating this because i feel like the vibe of of x-men origins wolverine was like this movie's bad we like ryan reynolds in it we wish he had more to do is that what mm-hmm. is that what people were saying about Blade Trinity, or was it like this movie's bad and Ryan Reynolds is bad in it, or I, was it more like he's good and he's the one good thing about it, or we don't remember we've rewritten this memory from our <laughs> brain entirely. I, do you know what? I couldn't say with any confidence. I yeah. think it's just I think it's clear from the movies that followed that studios didn't come back and say please be the leading man in our action franchises i think sure, it was maybe sure. this guy is talented but sticking your comedy. comedy box yeah and and you know and and again i feel you know i could read off a load of those movies like um i i think waiting and just just friends are charming to an extent he does the amityville horror which is a bit of a miss for him and it probably is again another one of those like get back in your box ryan reynolds um He's in a movie with Melissa McCarthy in 2007 called The Nines, which is fantastic, um, and I would uh, urge anyone to seek that out. It's written and directed by John August, who does the Script Notes podcast. Um, it's Ryan Reynolds, Hope Davis, and Melissa McCarthy, which is, you know, a fantastic trio to be leading mm-hmm. your movie. Um, and is this this weird story told in, in different segments, has lots of uh, meta-commentary in there, um, and... Yeah, it's great. I re I, I really like that. Um and then he's in he's in kind of small like I think definitely maybe he's so charming in. Yeah. Um it's basically definitely maybe is just just watch that instead of seven seasons of How I Met Your Mother because it <laughs> it, it, it it has an ending that makes sense for for its story. Um have you done definitely maybe on the on the column, Caroline? No, but I would like to because I do really like that movie. It's on the I, I, it's on the two cover someday list for sure. Brilliant. Um, he's uh, he's he gives a I, I think a really good performance in a in a very small movie called Chaos Theory, and then I think he's perfect in Adventureland, which again is is trading on that this guy is the coolest guy around. Um, but let's puncture that bravado with 
he's kind of a dick, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and I think he's great in that. And then so you you then get to X Men Origins Wolverine, which is like second bite of the cherry. He's playing this character called Deadpool, who would be perfect for him, except well, hadn't he? He'd spent a long time trying to be Deadpool, hadn't he? By that point, I... had he been lobbying for it? I think it was one of the. I, I don't think it was like. I don't think it becomes what it was after because he definitely does a lot of lobbying after X Men Origins Wolverine yeah. to get a chance to do the character again and properly. I think it had been one of those that like someone had name dropped him and he was like, "I love Deadpool. I would like." And I think I think someone had made maybe one of the comics had name dropped Ryan Reynolds mm-hmm. or like the comics had said, "I look like Ryan Reynolds with a mashed up face or something." Yeah, yeah. So there was there was he'd been linked to the role for ages, gets the chance to do it, and everyone's like, "Well, hang on, you can't, you've cast Ryan Reynolds to be Deadpool, and then taken away the thing that Ryan Reynolds would be good at doing as Deadpool." Um, and and so he's kind of the one thing that re- that emerges from that unscathed, has his massive hit with the proposal, um, and then kind of gets good notices for buried, and he gets cast as Green Lantern, and then Green Lantern kind of <laughs> torpedoes it all again. And he goes back to, like, mid-tier movies all the while working on Deadpool in the background. He has had more goes at a comic movie than almost anyone. These it's things... interesting, isn't it? It's really interesting how he keeps returning to them. It is. It's... You know how sometimes culture just decides they irrationally hate, like, Anne Hathaway or whatever? (laughs) There's something about people that get this many chances to fail when other people are given no chances. It makes me so hard to be sympathetic for them. Like, there's a spin of this narrative of, like, oh, it's so lovely that Ryan Reynolds fought for this dream for so many years and he finally achieved it, and I can understand (laughs) that. But it's also, like, most people don't get to make three of the worst superhero movies and then get to make a fourth one. Like, (laughs) a lot of people don't get that opportunity, and it's hard for me not to, you know... He probably is a wonderful guy, hopefully, (laughs) Um, given that he hangs out with Blake Lively and Hugh Jackman, and I like both of them. But, you know, a lot of people don't get this many chances. And I think he... He weirdly, I think, gets the chances based on his away from screen force of personality. Sure. That that that, that you know you you see him now as the, and again I find it so weird, but as the hype man for his own tequila and his own SIM cards <laughs> or something. I don't know Mint Mobile, um, and it, it makes me cringe every time I see it. But you know he's just he's doing that shtick. He's doing the. He's doing the like. Uh, oh, excuse I... me, Joe. He has a gin company. Tequila, I believe, is George Clooney. <laughs> oh, I, I, I apologize. Um, but I think that's, I think that's why he keeps getting the chances because when you look at that superhero stuff, I think he's awful in Blade Trinity. I think he's awful in Green Lantern, and in in Deadpool. Sorry, in, in X-Men Origins Wolverine, I don't think that Deadpool would register at all if this wasn't kind of... If that wasn't the hyped character from the comics. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I I think you're right. It's weird. It's, it's weird that he kept getting those chances. The, the only thing I would say in his favour is that, like, yeah, like I say, I think there are a... 
there are a bunch of movies in between those at a smaller level where he's giving he's giving great performances True. and there is and yeah. there is some there is something about there is something about his force of personality that it did i certainly as someone who loved ryan reynolds leading up to deadpool felt just give him the right project and it will work it 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 just will work eventually because this guy is funny he is handsome he is charismatic just give him the right project and 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 deadpool ended up being that for him i guess um yeah. and 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 yes and for me has broken his career <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's you know i don't think what he's doing works well in blade trinity but also it's hard to fault him for trying to do something yeah. to make neither, this movie work like does... it's not I was going to say, neither does anything else work in Blade Trinity. So right, exactly. And I think we, you know, we were dancing around this before, but I think the biggest problem is none of the main characters have relationships to each other. And again, you can do formulaic, have two of them be a couple, have you know, even have you could have like Hannibal and Abigail be brother sister. Maybe they're both Whistler's kids. You know, <laughs> that she would has make to. More sense. She has to. You know, maybe, I mean, obviously, so much of what I really enjoy about the first two Blade movies is that Whistler is like this father figure to Blade, and it feels like watching his father figure die and then, you know, meeting the daughter would be, would be a big emotional moment and maybe Blade becomes sort of the mentor figure to her or whatever the case may be. It's just like, give any sort of specificity to any of these relationships. Instead, it feels like people that are vague acquaintances just keep getting kidnapped and spending the movie you know, rescuing <laughs> one of them. But there's no, there's nothing specific about any of them. And like like you said before, I think you said this before, Joe, it's like Abigail and Hannibal, there's nothing there between, you know, there's nothing specific about their relationship that would make me root for them or want to see them team up. And, and, and I wonder whether that's one of, it's one of the drawbacks of adapting from the comics that yeah i don't know i don't know if abigail's a pre-existing character hannibal king felt like a notable enough name that i thought that must be a comics thing yeah he was and hannibal has his own wikipedia page and abigail doesn't the character yeah. which implies to me that she might not be from the comics yeah no she but i don't know whether that just i don't know whether that just adds you know that layer of inflexibility that it's like well Han- this is hannibal's deal he doesn't have a sister so we're not going to do that <sighs> or you know but then it's weird that there's no there's no there's no romantic edge yeah. between anyone in this movie. So I mean, there's what happens in this film? <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of people being captured and people rescuing them, and then very bizarrely edited. The editing of this film is just like actively confusing. The way the length of scenes, the way they cut between scenes it's very hard to follow and then all of a sudden people will be talking and then all of a sudden we're in a montage of them like doing something else and you're like what was this did they just decide to do this in the last scene because i don't remember that happening but i guess they must have and and again because the sort of villains are not doing anything they're just sort of apathetically hanging out it's like a mystery with no you know no engine to drive it i'm i'm just looking at jessica beale's imdb and i think Carolina, it, it stands to what you said. For someone who has, who is as well known as Jessica Biel in terms of having the kind of celebrity profile, mm-hmm. um, who, you know, I think is, is not an unengaging screen presence and is, you know, it clearly like looks incredible 
in in anything she turns yeah. up in. Uh, where where are all her shots at stardom or leading roles? Because right. you go you go past. I mean, like these are her known fours on you know the four that get picked out as the known four on IMDb. She's got the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is pre this. Um, then next with Nicolas Cage, The Illusionist, the the yeah yeah the not prestige. The, the not prestige of Edward Norton and the Total Recall remake, <laughs> and that and that's her known for. So they're like they they are what the algorithm says are her best known movies. And right. then you, and you look down the list and you go, could you make a case for the A Team? I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. Yeah, I was the gonna say she's Adam done a Sandler decent amount comedy. of. She did a bunch of those sort of ensemble based, love actually inspired rom coms. I really still associate her. She was on this show called Seventh Heaven that was sort of popular in the late 90s early 2000s and that was her first yeah. thing and i still like really strongly associate her with that yeah well, that's one of those... you know when when i was saying about about ryan reynolds coming off two guys and a girl and yeah. van wilder she's seventh heaven is that is what she's coming off of to to, to land this role right she i think she finishes that in 2003 and gets yeah, this that role would make sense the year after uh and then and then yeah Elizabeth Town? I don't know. It's not, I look at Easy Virtue. They're all they're all supporting roles in 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 not fantastically memorable movies. Hey, one episode of New Girl though. Caroline bringing yeah. it all back. I did. I did watch that recently. She's fun in it. I think Jessica Biel is the sort of person who has maybe limited. You know, she's not a super transformative actor, but I think is very watchable and compelling. And I don't know. I I enjoy her in this. Like I said, love her jacket that becomes a cape i think it's just a hindrance that nobody in this relationship has any relationship to one another and at the end of the day you can't fully blame that on wesley snipes not being no present because you could have had a really compelling dynamic then between abigail and hannibal but the fact that they don't do that implies to me this is beyond oh our star wouldn't cooperate and is sort of fundamental to the creation of the film which is not quite working yeah, I feel like we've run I, out um, of we've run out of good and bad things to say about. We've the movie. run out of ways to say we don't like this film. Is there anything else you guys did like? Is there anything else we want to highlight as like the little silver linings in this? Yeah, no, no, yeah. <laughs> I really struggled. I kind of liked just... the way they handled so Natasha Leone's character doesn't get much to do. She's just a member of the team, but she's blind, and that is just sort of like one of the attributes of the character she's also she's like the tech person she's a mother she's got her relationship to her daughter i liked how that was sort of like incidental low-key yeah. disability relation uh representation obviously the actress herself is not blind but i was like okay that was handled better than it could have been in other situations oh weirdly i enjoyed the dogs the vampire dogs which obviously oh. <laughs> made me think of the hulk dogs in the hulk. <laughs> but i thought this was a much better version of that yeah, I'm not. I'm not weirdly. sure which order these episodes have gone out in, but our listeners will have either just heard or are about to hear us go into intense depth from the Hulk dogs. <laughs> <laughs> these I are are these better or worse? I think I was equally disgusted. Uh, I found the the little thing that came out of their mouth so unpleasant. Yeah, <laughs> I liked them, and that was probably my favorite Ryan Reynolds like moment, like acting comedy moment was like dealing with the dogs. I was like weirdly on board with that whole sequence. <laughs> 
I just found it, I, I, yeah, I found it very derivative of a lot of other things. Like, it felt like it wanted to be, like I said, like it wanted to be Alias, like it wanted to be The Matrix, like it wanted to be anything that was kind of hot action property at that time, but without the uh, the confidence or the expertise to get near any of them at a technical mm-hmm. level. <laughs> Bad movie, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> it is a bummer, too, and, you know, certainly it sounds like at least Wesley Snipe you know was not doing himself favors in this but it is a bummer like i do think the blade character is so engaging and wesley snipes can be so engaging in those first two films it's a bummer this franchise went out the way it did yeah, a lot of I franchises that... crash land that way don't they like yeah true there's like a weirdly a lot of really bad third films <laughs> i think especially, that's especially when the in this... right and they the studios get suddenly very involved in trying to make them sustainable in a way that may think, not necessarily yeah. have their lead star in, especially, but in the in, especially in the kind of the two thousand seems to be the decade that is particularly bad for this. And uh, the you know you look at superhero cinema now, the MCU seems to have like completely flipped in the opposite direction, where they're like, by the time we get to a third movie, we must change yes. the director yeah. because it must feel different, very, so we yeah. don't fall into that trap. I mean, call. like, pay, I think. I think Peyton Reed and 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 now after being rehired, James Gunn are going to get to see out their trilogies. But I'm not sure if anyone else had directed all three before not that. Not yet, no. No, I think everyone tapped out at least two. So I guess I guess the Russos got to make a, a bunch, but didn't start off their franchise, mm-hmm. right? Well, and I will too. I feel like Wesley Snipes, just to end this on somewhat of a positive note, I feel like he did, there was a time where he certainly became sort of like a punchline, but actually he was very good in Dolomite is My Name last year, which is a very good movie that is a Netflix original. So Mm -hmm. it feels like he's in a little bit of a maybe comeback period, which makes me feel less bad about just like hating on (laughs) Blade Trinity in the way we did. I feel like, I feel like, okay, Wesley's doing a little better. We can look at the lows of his career, but still respect sort of like, I don't know. I, I don't want to lose sight of how good I think he is in those first two movies. And, and, and I would say how good he was throughout the 90s. Because what was interesting yeah. was I think there was kind of this this mini rivalry between him and Eddie Murphy. Um, and what Snipes was so good at was going from straight drama to straight comedy and, and then being able to integrate the two together mm-hmm. so well. Um, and... I, I mean, you you talked about Dolomite. He's still got the relationship with Spike Lee, so that he's got coming to America, coming to America, um, <laughs> in the future. Um, and he was just to, to talk about the last time that Wesley Snipes played Blade. He was in an episode of What We Do in the Shadows, uh, which is um, a season one episode called The Trial, uh, where he t- he turns up as Blade. And um, it's a fantastic episode, and I won't spoil all of the cameos, but basically a lot of well-known vampire actors who have played vampire roles turn up in that episode, um, all in person, apart from Wesley Snipes, who Skypes in, um, (laughs) and someone someone cracks a Wesley Skypes joke. Um, It's... And the connection's bad, and it's it's just clearly like Wesley Snipes being at the point where he can be in on the joke mm-hmm. um and it's it's super super funny and yes i agree it would be you know you know 
we we haven't talked about it yet, but the MCU are obviously they are they have plans to to revisit the character of Blade in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I am fascinated by how vampires will sit alongside the rest of the stuff they've got. <laughs> but I mean, I guess if you can do magic and you can do, I don't know, shape-shifting aliens that live amongst us, then you can do vampires as well. Um, they've obviously cast Mahershala Ali. Um, I would love it if they if the, if there was a role for Wesley Snipes yeah. in, in there as some kind of mentor or a villain. You know that are like I, I think he I think he could be fantastic. Yeah, and the way that the that. the Arrowverse will often have people come in, you know, that played the character yeah. decades ago and and acknowledge them in some way. I think that would be a really lovely thing it, for the new Blade movie to do. In the same way that I'm convinced that that what the Spider Man franchise needs to do is cast Tobey Maguire. Uh, I would like, but I just, I just like to see Wesley Snipes back. And um, I did want to ask you, just as as a final note on Blade, looking to the future of Blade in the MCU, um, how do you think they do it? And do you think that, from what little we know, which is Mahershala Ali has signed a contract, um, do you think it's going to be? Do you think it's going to work? Do you think it's going to be successful? I think it's pretty easy to do. Um... It would just be the same as mutants, like vampires are around, but we just haven't encountered them before. Um, and I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be successful. Like, Mahesh Ali is great. <laughs> he is very good in Luke Cage. Uh, he's good in other stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But specifically Luke Cage being, you know, superhero tinged. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've got no no qualms about it at all. More excited about that than what rewatching any existing Blade thing. <laughs> I sort of want the future of the MCU to be less interconnected anyway. I actually yeah. think, you yeah, know, yeah. they they did such an impressive thing with Endgame. I feel like it might be to their benefit to actually follow more of the DC formula moving forward and you know, not explicitly say things aren't in the same universe, but maybe not feel the need to tie it all in and and I don't know. No. Let Blade be in a vampire world and don't worry about whether there's vampires in But I I kind of ex- or whatever. I am invested in that world, right? For for all that I agree with the first half of what you just said, I am invested in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a thing that exists with this evolving canon because I just I like I I kind of I kind of love the the mechanics of trying to make all of these different things work within it in the same way that comics have been able to. I, I kind of agree that I would like them to be less interconnected in that there is no other MCU character that I want to show up in the Blade movie, but I do want it to to in some pl- in some way take place in that world, even if we need to go into the multiverse of madness to make it happen. <laughs> um, you know, I I, I I I'd want it to exist in there. But we've got uh, yeah, I think I'd be I'd be interested to see who they bring in as a as a director for that because they've certainly got a a really good star. If we if we if we ever end up seeing these movies, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, and will they? Hopefully, they'll bring in Wesley Snipes. But will they find a way to do a meta joke about the fact that Mahershala has already been in the MCU elsewhere? We're waiting on bated breath until twenty twenty three when we'll find out or whenever they'll release it. Yeah, I think they they tend to re- they tend to intensely ignore when yeah. they have when they have double cast people. I mean, we've got Gemma Chan as a major character in in uh, Eternals, right? Which I remember when they announced that, and Captain Marvel had just come out, and you were like, 
but people, she's just been in the other one. People will know. <laughs> and now you're thinking, no one remembers Gemma Chan in Captain Marvel. Right. It will be, it will be fine. Right, guys, that was that was Blade Trinity. I enjoyed our discussion of it immeasurably more than I enjoyed watching the film. Uh, which is to say that I I didn't nearly fall asleep at any yeah. point during this podcast. <laughs> um, Caroline, thank you for 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 joining us again. As we said, for another for another Parker Posey movie. Yeah. Oh, can I plug one thing? Oh, that's that is. Do you know what? You read my mind. That's exactly what I want Perfect. you to do right now. I, well, I, I ideally plug multiple things. Okay, well, I really just want to plug one thing. So I just, like, two days ago made a letterboxed profile, uh, account, whatever. I'm, I'm not familiar with this. If any of you listeners use letterboxed, either follow me, give me your advice on how to use it. It feels new and scary, and I just feel like I need to put out there that I have one and also get everyone's recommendations on how best to use it. Caroline, you speak in my language. Do you um, have one? I tried to look for you on there, and again, I don't really understand how it works, so I couldn't find you. We'll talk off mic, but if anyone would yeah. like to follow me on Letterboxd, I'm going to try to start using that regularly now. Um, I would I would say um, make of it what you need to make of it. Okay. You know, you, you, I, I use mine primarily as a diary. Some people use it to curate lists. Some people use it as... Uh, a means of um, uh, like logging all their reviews. Um, it's fun. It's uh, some people use it just to literally follow other people, and I I love watching a movie and then searching and anyone and then being able to like just click through the reviews of anyone that I follow on there already mm-hmm. and seeing and, and like you, you know and whereas in in pre letterboxd I'd watch a movie and go. Right, okay, so that came out in 1996. Um, I don't know, maybe I'll look up Roger Ebert's review, sure, yeah. cl- click through the Wikipedia page. Now I can type it in and go, all right, um, eight of my friends have seen that. Um, six of them have given it a star rating, so I can immediately see broadly what they thought of it. And four of them have actually written a review. And I'll, I'll read and go, oh, okay. Oh, that's what you made of that thing. Great. <laughs> and then I, I also love the ability to track all of the movies that I've been watching. Letterbox should be sponsoring this. Um, track all the movies that I've been watching and then like go back at the end of the year and go... Oh, hey, I watched um, I watched eight movies by that director. And I, I, I didn't even really mean to or realise I was doing it. And, oh, it turns out I watch most of my movies on a, on a Wednesday or a Thursday. And I rarely watch movies on a Tuesday. Yeah. That's but that's that's me with I've kind of always loved statistics. So yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. Digging into that kind of nerdy stuff. Okay, perfect. So follow me and Joe on Letterboxd, I guess. And, and did you did you say your uh, your handle on Letterboxd, Caroline? So I think can it's just you? my name, Caroline Sita. I think and... <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what I typed in. My name is usually not taken on platforms. And then our listeners can also uh, find you on Twitter. And oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You are at Caroline Sita there as well. Correct. And they should hopefully be able to read your review of my Super X girlfriend. (laughs) Not review, sorry, your column. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, my takedown, as it were. Yeah, if that interests you. I also, see, and this ties it all together, because my Super X girlfriend was the first movie I put in on Letterboxd. So it's all an interesting journey I've been experiencing. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Caroline. Um, I'm sure we'll have you uh, back again before too long. Um, 
we'll we'll, we'll try and dig out that next Parker Posey movie. <laughs> um, if you enjoyed this episode, then you can find more and subscribe on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Player FM, Overcast, Google, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. You can find everything we do at cinematicuniverse.com. You can find our merch at cinematicu.redbubble.com. Um, and if you want to get in touch, you can do that uh, on Twitter at cine underscore verse or send us an email to podcast at cinematicuniverse.com. Uh, you can find us on Patreon if you want to support us further. Uh, but thank you for listening and we will see you next week. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.